Welcome to Origin Gates Daily Podcast called Wisdom's Echo. I'm Ray Hughes, and I'm going to be sharing with you today. There was a time when um, the power of preaching would find itself wrapped in the beauty of poetry. And as a matter of fact, one-third of the Bible is poetry. But there were certain times in history you would find these fellows who just seemed to, if you, if you cut them, they would bleed the beauty of who Jesus was in their life. They did it with, with such metaphor and simile and imagery and, and rhythm and cadence that you would just think, uh, um, you know, they're, they're, just, they're just one syllable away from song. And it was also traditional in many churches and many expressions of the kingdom for the sermons to almost sound like the hymns, and the hymns almost sound like the sermons, just one was without melody and without the same cadence, maybe, and same rhythm. And then there were those that would see to it that the awe of God was believed to be connected to the austere wanderings and meanderings of thought and Stoic liturgy. And which really, uh, you know, is a place where religion and rules and regulations and limitations and boundaries, and many times the beauty is traded in for the awe and fear of God. But in fact, poetry is not about finding clever-sounding ways to wrap your life in red roses and blue violets. You know, poetry is about gathering words and gently twisting them into beautifully entangled vines until they reveal an unforeseen truth. And, uh, but also, poetry is about being fully present and fully engaged with the beauty of the language that reminds you to care enough. I mean, there's something caring about poetry. Care enough to heal as you keep saying yes to your own life. You're, you're embracing new a new sense of wonder. And that should not just be limited to what we consider to be poetry, which, again, is many times just finding ways of wrapping our life in red roses and blue, blue violets. But down through the ages, though, there have been maybe one generation it would seemingly become way too religious for its own good and, and too stoic for its own good. And then God would raise up some obscure someone, unheard of, out of nowhere, that had the sense and sensibilities to preach uh, the beauty of who Jesus was in their life in beautiful ways. Anytime I think of somebody doing that, I, I immediately think of Charles Spurgeon, who was considered to be the prince of preachers, just a young man from, from England who was lured uh, by the love of God and wandered right into his calling very naturally, just simply because when the Lord did something beautiful in his life, he felt necessary to tell people in a beautiful way. And as a result, this young man became the most prolific Christian author of all times. And you, you got to remember this prince of preachers did what he did uh, before typewriters, or let alone computers and word processors and all that. And uh, he's considered to be the most widely read preacher of all times. Uh, he, he produced more written material than any other Christian in history. For example, he wrote 140 books. He penned up to 500 personal letters per week. Can you imagine? 
He published a monthly magazine called The Sword and the Trowel because, and the reason he did these things is because he felt it necessary to give beautiful language to who God was so that the next generation coming behind him would not get caught in the trap of the old stoic, liturgical, uh, almost morbid-sounding representations of, of the beauty and the life that he found in Jesus. He wanted everybody to have a new sound, if you will, a new song, a new language, a new, new life flowing out of them. So he published these magazines and started schools of training to, to teach the next generation how to access the beauty of the poetry. And he did that with the sword and the trowel. I, I have numerous volumes of that myself here. But tra he transcribed his weekly sermons that day uh, that fill 63 volumes and a total between 20 to 25 million words. And, and of course, his work has been translated into many languages. No, I don't even know how many. It sold millions of copies worldwide. And he said that when he stepped into the pulpit, everyone would just feel the anticipation of what would be the first words that would come out of his mouth. I mean, that, there's a grace, a, a divine infusion of God's enablement upon his life to bring such profound truths, but it, it was a gift of persuasion, I guess you could call it. But it wasn't just that. It was life. And uh, he, he made you laugh. he make you cry. Matter of fact, that's part of the controversy around him being in the pulpit was everybody laughed. You're not supposed to laugh in church. That's displeasing to God. Well, not with Spurgeon. He was real. But you would laugh. You would cry. You would be awestruck with God. And even in his writing, as I mean, the stroke of his pen were just, if you read his writings today, I mean, not just the poetry, but the eloquence of the prose that he wrote with. A lesson to be learned for all, for all of us. If we want to shape humanity and shape culture, maybe a part of what's missing is the beauty of who God is and, and presenting him in, such, in the beautiful way that exemplifies his love and grace, mercy. He's not just some a big old white-haired being sitting on some cloud with a stick in his hand waiting for you to mess up. Spurgeon would say things like, I have learned to kiss the waves that have slammed me into the rock of ages. Well, he could have said, well, hey, you know, I've been through some stuff, but I made it. Uh, but no, he chose to say, I have learned to kiss the waves that have slammed me into the rock of ages. He would say things like, a Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. And believe me, folks, if you read and know his story, there was plenty of tearful times in his life. He actually suffered from horrible, morbid depression. And that depression was brought about by trauma. What was the trauma? What was the traumatic event? He stepped into the pulpit one night, and there were 6,000 people in the audience, if you can imagine. 6,000 people. And just before he began to preach, someone hollered out and alarmed the whole place, fire, fire. And it created a stampede. And, and I think six or seven people died and dozens injured to the point of death. And for the rest of his life, every time that he would step into the pulpit, he would have to rise above the trauma of that moment that cost lives that he loved and 
And it was, it was so traumatic for him that it, it, he never really, really got over that. But also, as one of the things that that helped him was he processed his life through the, the beauty of poetry and imagery and metaphor so that he wouldn't always see that image of death and despair. He processed his life through his poetry in such a way that he would access the beauty of who God was in that moment. He would focus on the word that he was there to bring, and he would rise above, sometimes at great cost, but he would rise above those images and the pain. And uh, but he is uh, it's very well known that he dealt with m- a morbid, horrible depression as a result of that trauma. And once he once said, "There is hardship in everything, except eating pancakes." <laughs> he once said, "He who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children." So he found found ways, if you will. But nonetheless, he still, that's one of the ways that he dealt with his depression. Uh, what an amazing man. What an amazing gift. And we still have, even to this day, uh, we have the ability to access some of that beauty and that poetry that he left the world. He started a message one time. He was preaching this and on May the 2nd in 1858. He, was, he said, uh, he was speaking as Christ glorified as the builder of his church. And he started off with Zechariah 6.13. He said, He shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory. And here's how he began his message then. There's music in all things, if man had ears. This world is but the echo of the spheres. Heaven sings evermore before the throne of God. Angels and redeemed saints, they extol his name. And this world is singing too, sometimes with the loud noise of the rolling thunder, of the boiling sea, of the dashing cataract, and of the lowing cattle, and often with that still, solemn harmony which flows from the vast creation, when in its silence it praises God too. Such is the song which gushes in silence from the mountain, lifting its head to the sky, covering its face sometimes with the wings of mist, and at other times unveiling its snow-white brow before its maker and reflecting back his sunshine, gratefully thanking him for the light with which it has been made to glisten, and for the gladness of which is the solitary spectator, as in the grandeur it looks down upon the laughing valleys. The tune to which heaven and earth are set is the same. In heaven they sing, The Lord be exalted. Let his name be magnified forever. And in earth they sing the same. Great art thou in thy works, O Lord and unto thee be glory. But you see how he would approach the beauty and the awe and the wonder and majesty of who God was? He would, you know, remember this is before television, before radio, it was before, you know, so he he basically would become a production of sort, bringing all of his gifts and faculties together in such a way to 
present and portray a part of the nature of God when he would speak. And, of course, that sermon that I began with you, it goes on and gets even more beautiful as it goes. He was one of those fellows who was so focused. He had to, he had to maintain that kind of focus. First of all, he had, to, he had to stay deeply engaged in truth and life and in the Word of God because he was so popular and so, you know, what everyone considered successful in ministry that he became the target of, of slander and the target of all kind of controversy. And, you know, he was like so many of them. When controversy comes, you know, you've got to stand from a place of conviction because controversy and conflict sometimes is what forges that strength in us that define what our convictions really are. He was certainly one of those that never, ever backed away from a challenge based on man's opinion. Man's opinion did not mean a whole lot to him. He was honorable in the way he addressed. He was always gracious, but he was never weakened in his message by the opinions of others. And I know that opinions of others can be important sometimes. David proved that. He was continually concerned about what his enemies were saying about him and what they would do and what they would think and all that. He would always rise above it, though, and yet praise the Lord his God anyway. And, uh, and I dare say that if you carry something that's going to be controversial and bring conflict, there's going to come a day that you're going to have to deal with uh, commitment in your own heart to not yield and bow to other people's thinking. But the greatest tool you have is to let your thoughts be carried by the beauty of the truth that's alive in your heart, because then you won't be speaking from a platform of intellectualism. You'll be speaking from a heart full of passion. And so I just pray that is a blessing over every one of you today, that we'll find that expressed beauty of who God is and deliver it with passion and purity of heart. Hey, see you next time.